0: Welcome to this segment of A Day at DPL, a thought leadership series that is part of the Advisor Revelations podcast. You will hear from DPL's founder and CEO, David Lau, and a special guest where they will discuss educational topics around industry trends and best practices, providing advisors insights to grow your business and better serve clients.
1: Hello, everyone, uh, we're welcoming today Michael Finka on today's Day at DPL podcast. uh, Michael is a professor and director at the American College of Financial Services. He is professor of wealth management, director of the Granham Center for Financial Security, and the Frank M. Engel Distinguished Chair in Economic Security at the American College of Financial Services. Michael is a nationally renowned researcher with a focus on the value of financial advice, financial planning regulation, investments, and individual investor behavior. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, David. Good to be here. So we get to talk about kind of our, our favorite mutual business topic, at least, uh, in retirement and annuities and insurance and retirement financial planning, all of that good stuff. I can't wait. We work with RIAs, as you know. And RIAs have you know always been, as I say, kind of allergic to annuities we help solve one of their biggest problems in that we have eliminated commissions so that they can now get paid on the products. But one of the things you know, RIAs have always been is asset managers. So they tend to think of investments, they tend to think of numbers. And one of the areas of your know, retirement that you've focused on in your studies, which to me is really the ultimate measure of a good retirement, is satisfaction and happiness in retirement of your client. And that's not always about numbers, and it's not always about you know investments alone. And so, you know, what can you, you know, talk to us about about the research and your findings, you know, relative to what creates a satisfying and happy retirement?
0: You know, David, I think when when it comes to a topic like annuitization, as you know, there, there's not a whole lot of disagreement among economists about the value of annuitization, and I think it, one of the reasons is because it is mathematically provable that you can spend more per year more safely through annuitization than you can through assets alone why because you don't know how long you're going to live so you pull that risk of unknown longevity which is an idiosyncratic risk which we're all trained to get rid of is idiosyncratic risk why because we don't sacrifice by using some form of diversification on average to get rid of idiosyncratic risk so with a portfolio we can Without changing the expected return, we can make people better off by diversifying a portfolio. So that's automatically something that we do. But I think oftentimes advisors don't consider that not knowing how long you're going to live is an idiosyncratic risk. And we can get rid of that idiosyncratic risk through mortality risk pooling by simply creating what's what I like to call a long life income club where everybody participates. And the people who don't live as long subsidize those who live a long time, but everybody can live better. So there's no sacrifice in lifestyle by being part of the Long Life Income Club. It is just a simple, efficient way of getting rid of idiosyncratic risk. So the numbers, guys, like annuities. But what really motivates me to talk about annuitization and really when I'm talking about this whole idea of mortality risk pooling, that, that true essential benefit that you get from the annuitization product structure, that is something that not only provides a efficiency, but it also helps the average person live better. So. I've recently done some research on life satisfaction in in retirement. And what I consistently see is that those, especially in the prior generation that had access to pensions, those who have more lifetime income are happier than those who have less lifetime income. Actually, if you estimate mathematically what the amount of happiness is, the $10,000 of lifetime income is roughly equivalent to about Having an extra $650,000 in investable assets. So you can buy $10,000 of income for a lot less than $650,000 of investable assets. So it is, it's efficient in that sense too, in terms of overall happiness. Now, when you drill into why annuitization makes people happier, uh, or why guaranteed lifetime income makes people happier, what in whatever form it is, whether it's social security or pensions or some kind of a private annuity, it is. Because it allows people to spend the money that they've saved without having to worry about running out. And when you actually look at what makes people happy in retirement, the the categories that have the biggest impact on life satisfaction are those frivolous social spending categories, like going out to eat with friends or going on vacations. That's what makes people really happy in retirement. What happens when the market falls or when there's anxiety about what's going on in the overall market? People stop spending money on those categories. So essentially what you're doing is not only are you providing something that the, the quants love, which is mortality risk pool and getting rid of the idiosyncratic risk, you're also giving people the freedom to actually spend the money that they've saved by providing a guarantee that they're never going to run out. And you know, to me, as, as an academic, that I want people to live better. You know, They're making sacrifices over their working years to save. They, they could have lived a better life if they would have saved less, but yeah. they saved more. So now they get to retirement and I want to
1: give them something that's going to give them the greatest amount of joy from what they've saved. Yes. And I mean, I have like direct experience with this, you know, anecdotal, right? Because it's my father we're talking about. So my father forever, he tried to retire several times, right? He he retired for a couple months here, a couple months there, always going back to work. And I always presume because he is, he's a workaholic, right? That he never really wanted, you know, could get away from work because he just enjoyed it. Finally, after having retired a few times, I said to him, dad, are you really going to do it this time? And he's like, yeah, I think so. But I'm, you know, I'm a little bit worried about my income in retirement. Like I've been working with an RIA, one that I had recommended to him. And I'm like, do you know what I do for a living? <laughs> for a living? <laughs> let, me, let me talk to you about an annuity. And, you know, I explain the annuity and what you realize is like the psychological changes. I mean, there's so much changing, right? When somebody retires. They're going from working, they're losing that. There's so much insecurity and so much change and lack of stability. They were, they, as you were describing, they were savers, they were accumulators. Now they're looking at, they're losing their work identity. They're going to having to start depleting that nest egg that they've built up for you know decades. And that's all a big change. And like for my father, it's like, hey, just having that security of that paycheck, and he's not a spender and he's a wealthy guy. He had no worries about running out of money, but he just didn't like the fact that his income was now going to be so much in flux and unpredictable. He just wanted the security that the annuity would provide. Now, I don't know that that was absolutely the thing that got him to finally you know, stick to a retirement. But coincidentally, the annuity happened and he's now stayed retired. Yeah, we we've studied
0: this phenomenon of people who have spent their entire working life spending less than they earn. So the savers, we call them the ants and the ants get to retirement and they build up this big nest egg because they're ants. They've been trained to save for the winter. You know, they're they're not like the grasshoppers. The grasshoppers, they spent their money. They, they had fun with the money, but they're, the ants. They, they saved and they preserve this nest egg for retirement. And then when you watch what the ants do in retirement, you see that, they, and I've actually done interviews with ants. Uh, you know, there, there was a financial company that actually allowed me to interview people who were in retirement. So I would ask them this question, like, what's your philosophy for spending your money that you saved in retirement? And I would get all these answers about, well, you know, we're trying to make sure that we maintain our nest egg. You know, in fact, last year, we were able to grow our nest egg, you know, we get buy one, get one free dinners, and we don't spend a whole lot of money. And, and I'm like, well, that's great. You know, you must really want to pass on your wealth to your kids. <laughs> and then there's this pause and they say, well, no, you know, I, I helped my kid pay for their education and they make more money now than I ever did. I, I want to I don't necessarily want to give the money to my kids. And I'm like, well, you've only got two choices. <laughs> you can either spend it and enjoy your life or you can pass it on. There's there's no third option that I know of. So, you know, and especially if you're an ant, think about what will give you the freedom to spend your money and not feel guilty about it. I've asked this question over and over in surveys, which is how would you feel about spending the money that you've saved to create a lifestyle and seeing that nest egg get smaller? And what I see is consistently only about one in seven people feel comfortable seeing that nest egg get smaller. We have a problem as Americans. We've gone from a pension system to a defined contribution saving system that's going to force the ants to do something that they've never done in their life, which is spend more than their income. And they don't just don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, But we have to give them something because it's frankly never been more expensive to create an income from an investment portfolio. for It's in the history of the United States. If you look at the cost of creating income from a 10-year Treasury bond and income from dividends on the S&P 500, it now costs over $100,000 to get $2,000 of income from an investment portfolio. What that means is that for today's defined contribution retiree, they are not going to be able to generate income from the the returns, from the income that they're getting from an investment portfolio. And that means they're going to have to figure out a way to spend it down in a way that they're going to feel comfortable and not at risk of potentially running out.
1: Yeah, and, and and that has me, along with some other factors, incredibly worried for people's retirements in general. So you know, as we work with you know the thousand plus RIA firms on incorporating annuities and other insurance into financial plans, and you see a lot of the assumptions in a financial plan, you know, maybe being overly aggressive, you know, relying on historical averages. maybe first (laughs) time i'm trying to be kind um relying on historical averages you know uh, you know not only for fixed income returns which is like completely unrealistic but even on equity returns so you know you see financial plans built upon maybe a blended eight percent return uh and i I like to call it fairy dust but yes (laughs) yeah i mean it's got me tremendously worried i mean because you 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 take some unrealistic market assumptions and maybe, you know, not planning for a long enough retirement, you know, for, you know, a client. And then you're coming out with, you know, the Monte Carlo score, you know, in an 80% range, which is acceptable to a lot of advisors. Uh, And they position it to their clients like, don't worry, you know, there's 80% chance the plan's going to be just fine. And if we're off a little bit, I'll just kind of manage your spending, you know, you know, through, you know, through retirement, everything's going to be fine. And I think it kind of minimizes the whole problem, and I think the problem is bigger than than maybe anybody's talking about. What, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, you know, you have to you have to deal with reality. and I mean, there's no other way to put it than for today's retiree, reality kind of sucks. So mm-hmm. you've got uh, bond returns, which I just checked. Returns on a 10-year corporate bond of decent quality, i mean, not returns, yields are 2.2%. Yields on 10-year treasuries are 90 basis points. Historically, investors have gotten about a quarter of the yield spread between corporates and treasuries. So maybe you get one and a quarter. Maybe you get one and a half percent return on your fixed income portfolio. Nobody knows. But that's probably your best bet. Stock valuations today are higher than they've been at any point in history other than 1999. So they're higher than they were in 1929. Can valuations predict future stock returns? Actually, since 1995, valuations have predicted 90% of the variation in 10-year stock returns. And what valuations say right now is the stock returns are probably going to be closer to 4%. So you've got 4% expectations on equities. You've got maybe one and a quarter, one and a half percent return on fixed income. And then you're subtracting AUM and you're saying, you know, uh, you're you're run, if you run your Monte Carlo with realistic expectations about asset returns, you're going to come up with very different conclusions about the safety of your investment portfolio. And I'm not being pessimistic. I'm just being realistic. Given the amount of data that I have access to as a researcher, I was optimistic in 2009 when stock prices were way more, way cheaper than they are right now. Now I'm a bit more pessimistic. A lot of advisors, I think, have, have based their value proposition on being able to generate portfolio returns, which may not be realistic going forward. So this is one of the reasons why insurance products are created using, well, today's returns. And they have to they they can't just make up bond returns and plug them into a Monte Carlo. They have to deal with the reality of the marketplace, which means that that reality can seem a little bit depressing to someone who believes that they're going to be able to do better. But if you deal with reality, those insurance products all of a sudden become a lot more attractive and those guarantees become a lot more attractive and less expensive. If you're dealing from a reality-based perspective, but as we all know, it,
1: you know it can be tempting not to not to deal with reality. Yes, and sometimes necessary, particularly this year, right? So what we see a lot, is, you know, right along those lines is you know as we work with advisors, most advisors, you know, we try to get them to the point, you know, that David Blanchett calls not to be pro annuity, but to be pro consideration, right? Yeah. Let's let's just. Be pro-consideration because you know, our experience is if, if you're going to consider them, if you, meaning you're actually going to look at the products and put them into your plan, you're probably going to like what you see as an advisor, unless you've got some unrealistic you know, numbers built into your planning software. But you're generally going to like what you see that the annuity can do for a plan. The The problem is has been always getting them to consideration. But in all of the years I've been doing this, exceptionally rarely had any advisor argue the numbers with me or the outcome. It's more, you know, other factors, you know, the, you know, I just don't do annuities, the, you know, the you know, religious argument. I don't believe, you know, I don't believe in them, you know, but not based on anything uh, other than the unrealistic numbers. But I mean, when we help an advisor plug an annuity into a plan and it doesn't help, usually the culprit is the assumptions that were put into the plan on market returns. But many still rely on the 4% rule. And we do a little research of our own. We had a you know, retirement survey we, we do each year. And we asked advisors, how do you think low interest rates in the current environment impact the 4% rule? And more than not, say it either doesn't affect the 4% rule, or actually the 4% rule is higher today, than when Bill Bangin, you know, developed it back in 1994. But what are your findings, you know, these days on, on the 4% rule? Is that something that you know, is still good guidance for, you know, retirement income?
0: I would say that's, you know, what the problem with the 4% rule is that it deals with randomness, that it is stochastic. And if something is stochastic, then you don't have to deal with reality so much. You can pretend that something that could happen is going to happen. So. Let's not go there. Let's start with a presumption that a portion of your retirement spending is fixed and a portion of your retirement spending is variable. And that fixed portion of a retiree's budget, which is probably between 60 and 70 percent of their spending, you cannot fund with stocks. You just can't. You can't. If stocks do poorly, you can't not make your uh, property insurance payments. So you've got to pay your health care. Those expenses need to be funded with safe investments like bonds. So let's sit down and let's estimate how much you need to set aside in bonds to fund your safe spending in retirement. The first step of that is to decide what failure rate you're willing to accept with your basic expenses in retirement. Is it a 25% failure rate? Is it a 10% failure rate? Is it a 5% failure rate? Because you have to accept some failure rate if you're going to put together a bond ladder or some type of a bond strike. It doesn't matter if it's a bond ladder or a bond mutual fund. It's pretty much the same thing. You're kind of stuck with today's returns either way. Because if interest rates go up in the future, then your bond mutual fund is going to go down in value. And you know, if it has any duration in it, it's going to give you the same income. So let's start with that. And then let's estimate how much it costs to build your income up to a certain percentile. So let's, and first of all, we cannot use social security mortality tables because social security mortality tables are irrelevant for your client. Your client is going to live far longer than the social security averages. And in fact, that has actually stretched since Bill Bengen wrote the original 4% rule article, that men have gained five years of longevity since the 4% rule article was written in the top 10th percentile of income. Women have gained three years in the top 10th percentile of income and longevity. And what that's done is it stretched joint longevity out farther and farther. But let's just look at a woman, a 65-year-old woman, has a 27% chance who is healthy, has a 27% chance of living to the age of 95. So let's, let's estimate how much income you can get from your bond portfolio to the age of 95. Is your client willing to accept a 27% probability that they're gonna run out? No. Well then let's do it to 100 for a 65 year old healthy woman. She's got a, a 9% chance of surviving to the age of 100. What will it cost to buy an income from bonds at today's interest rates to age 100? Now let's compare that to the cost of buying the exact same amount of income with a 0% chance or a near 0% chance of running out of money. They're priced based on the cost of funding, essentially a bond ladder to the average longevity, which may be closer to late 80s. And so you can get far more safe income per dollar through insurance. The problem I have with these, these Monte Carlo stochastic analyses is it allows you to avoid the reality that part of your spending is going to be paid for from bonds, safe investments. And you can predict with a large degree of certainty, the amount of income a retiree is going to be able to fund from their bond investments. And that's a great thing about bonds is that if you have any duration You're pretty much stuck with today's interest rates. David Blanchett has estimated that something like 90% of the return you're going to get even on a bond mutual fund is determined by your interest rates at the very beginning of retirement. So you're stuck with that. And if you're stuck with that, estimate the cost of building a bond ladder to a certain longevity and then estimate the cost of doing it with insurance. And what you'll see is that you can get far more income per dollar with insurance And then that allows you to actually, with the remainder of your investment portfolio, do more with that. You can spend more. You can take greater risk. It gives you far more flexibility because you know you're not going to run out with that basic expense part of their budget.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we have a retirement income calculator that we've developed here at DPL and one that will compare your fixed income portfolio to an annuity. And the approach we take with it is to say, okay. you have some dollar amount. If you were going to put it in an annuity, this product will generate X amount of income. Then if you were to match that from the bond portfolio at your yields, how long would that bond portfolio last before it was depleted? Because you're going to immediately have to go into principal because the yield is not going to be the same as the payout rate on the annuity. And, And typically what you see is, The bond portfolio is going to last 12, 13 years against today's current annuity payout rates. And that's a pretty big eye opener for an advisor who's been an investments only person and thinking about using bonds for that part of secure income that you were talking about. It's
0: difficult for people to change their opinions. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that many annuity products are probably not something that a fiduciary advisor would consider buying for their client or recommending. But the thing is, it is a product structure. And just like a mutual fund, there are expensive ones and there are cheap ones. There's ones you would recommend and there's ones that you wouldn't recommend. You can't dismiss the entire product structure simply because there's more expensive ones. You can't dismiss the mutual fund structure because there are 200 basis points, mutual funds that you would never put your client in because there are cheaper mutual funds that you should consider putting your client into. And yeah. same thing with insurance products. There's going to be a range of costs. I think this is something that's very important for advisors to know. We do a lot of research on annuity pricing, and I will tell you that the quotes that we're getting on annuity insurance products, whose purpose is to provide lifetime income, they're generous. These are very competitively priced products that anybody should consider. Uh, you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't dismiss them because they're not competitively
1: priced because they are that's right and and even you've made a claim on Qlacs as you know calling them a no brainer. I mean, there aren't many things you know in life that we call no brainers, but you know longevity risk is something that's real right and getting to be a a bigger problem and and not you know because of some of the limitations of how much you can you know use for a qlac it might not be a complete solution yet you know, to longevity, but talk about you know talk about uh you know why you call qlacs a no-brainer.
0: Yeah. You know, a few years ago, when, when QLAX first came out, I, I was talking with someone from an insurance company and I was saying, wow, these QLAX are so exciting. You get exactly the kind of insurance product that most economists think that everybody should have, which is a you know later life longevity annuity. It covers that mortality protection for later life years where it's cheapest to cover it. And I was like, you must, you must be selling some of these. And she's like, no, you know, the only people buying them are college professors and actuaries and engineers because they understand you know it's it's a it's a bit of an esoteric product in the sense that it provides late life income. You're taking money off of the table right now, you get this tax deferral benefit which is a little esoteric. You take a lump sum of money and you give it to an insurance company and that's no fun because you're not getting anything in return for a long time, so you've got to be willing to value your well-being in the distant future. You can understand now why, why it is you know, engineers and actuaries and college professors who are buying these things. But if you're going to buy pooled income through a long life income club, and let me tell you why this is beneficial. So you've got two choices. As I mentioned before, you can either pool your income or you can create a bond ladder. And if you're a 65-year-old male, Let's say you want $100,000 of spending at the age of 96. Well, at today's interest rates, you're going to have to set aside $35,000 today to fund $100,000 of spending at the age of 96. But it just so happens that if you look at the mortality table, a 65-year-old man has a 1 in 10 chance who's healthy, a 1 in 10 chance of living to the age of 96. So he's got two choices. He can either side $30,000 or $35,000 at the beginning of retirement to fund $100,000 of spending at the age of 96, or he can get together with nine of his friends and start a long life income club. And each of them can pitch in $3,500 and they can still get $100,000 if they live to the age of 96. So it does not affect your income at all. And it costs you one-tenth the price. Why? Because of what's known as mortality credits. And, you know, to an economist, this is a no brainer. Why would you not do this? Because, first of all, if you live to the age of 96, you've got $100,000 of income for $3,500. And if you don't live to age 96, then you've been able to live better each year in retirement because you didn't have to set aside that extra, you know, $30,000 to fund late life spending. You got more money to enjoy. You live better between 65 and 85 and the fact that you're subsidizing the 96 year old retiree, it doesn't matter because you're dead, you know, like that's, <laughs> right. that, that's why economists, you know, who, who tend to be not very sentimental bunch are like, well, this, they throw they call it the annuitization puzzle. Like why, why don't more people do this? So right. you're buying annuitization when it is cheaper, that late life annuitization, you're cutting off that tail risk of potentially outliving your assets. But in the same process. You're taking up to $135,000, buying about $40,000 of income. that starts at the age of 85. And then it makes retirement income planning so much easier because, you know, if you have a husband and a wife who have significant IRA assets, they can each put $135,000 into a QLAC at $40,000 of income starting at the age of 85. You've got Social Security on top of that. Then really, retirement income planning becomes planning between 65 and 85. And that's a lot easier than planning for an unknown time horizon. And, you know, it means that your client, they don't have sleepless nights when the market crashes because they're worried about running out of money. You can always tell them, you got this income that's going to kick in at the age of 85. Don't worry about what's going on in the market. So not only is it mathematically efficient, but I think it also is one of those examples where it's behaviorally efficient. What I find also in my research is that people, as they get older, they become more emotional about these rises and falls in the stock market they're more prone to make investment mistakes yeah. it's going to be a lot easier to manage that volatility if you've got some sort of a plan for dealing with long life or dealing with with the eventuality that your clients might live to the age of 100
1: yeah that, i mean that makes me think of a, of a point i know i've heard you talk about before where you know, you've also got this this problem as people age their confidence in their ability to make financial decisions is increasing, right, at the same time that their actual ability is decreasing, you think about how that plays into, you know, should they have a secure retirement, you know, should they have some, you know, foundational, you know, elements to, you know, to generating their income, uh, to start taking some choices off the table later in life.
0: You know, people talk to me about self-driving cars. And they say, well, what do you think about self-driving cars? Because I'm a big car guy. I love driving. Yeah. and I say it's awesome. And I cannot wait for when I'm 90 to be able to get in my self-driving car and have it drive me to the grocery store. Because first of all, I know that my driving skills when I'm 90 are not going to be that good. Uh, But I also know that I'm not going to know it. So I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to the grocery store and put myself at risk and put other drivers at risk. Why could? Why shouldn't I do the same thing with my finances? Why shouldn't I also automate my finances so that after the age of, say, 80, I have put together a plan where I can make all the mistakes I want with my investments, and no matter what happens, I'm still going to arrive safely at my destination. So automating late-life income, you know, again, mathematically, pooling it has a big advantage, but also you want to take yourself out of the equation because you're... Going to have a different set of financial abilities when you're 90 years old than when you're 65, you're not gonna realize it. And you need to make these choices early in retirement to make sure that you don't make mistakes late in retirement.
1: So, what do you find on on what you referenced earlier, the annuity dilemma? Like you've got there's you know all these compelling reasons to utilize you know annuities, both you know, kind of psychological and and economic. And you know what? What do you find is, is the barrier to you know more people utilizing whether they be advisors or, or you know clients or average investors to, to u- utilizing annuities?
0: A big problem is the nest egg problem that when you get to retirement, let's say you've saved two million dollars for retirement, you focus on that two million dollars, and you see that number get smaller. So a lot of people think, why Why would I take you know a portion of my savings? and buy some form of guaranteed income option with that, and poof, it's gone. It's now I have 1.5. It's a major psychological barrier to get over. I've gotten over it myself because I'm an economist and I study this stuff. You know when I moved from one university to another, I got the option to buy seven years of pension credit toward my pension. This was early on in my career, and it pretty much took all of the savings that I had in my 403B account at the time to buy those seven years of credit. It went poof and it hurt. And I, you know, there was a big psychological barrier, despite the fact that I knew that it was just emotional and irrational, but yeah. it was gone. And that's not easy to do. But There hasn't been a day since I did that that I regret it. In fact, the farther I get away from that decision, the the less painful it is and the more grateful I am that I know that no matter what happens, I'm going to have that income to live on. And I think that's what happens very often with annuitization is that there is this large initial barrier to seeing the money go away. And all you get is a promise, a promise of lifetime income. And it's one of the reasons why I kind of like QLACs. I call them the gateway drug to annuitization. Is <laughs> if you have someone, you know, a retiree who is resistant to the concept of annuitization, they cannot, you know, with $135,000, buy that, that promise of $40,000 of lifetime income starting at the age of 85. Once they do that, and they live with it for a while, all of a sudden, they think, wow, that's great. I feel happier knowing that no matter what happens in the market, I'm going to have that income for the rest of my life that's going to start at the age of 85. Maybe I want more of that. Seeing examples where they start with a Q lag, they put $500,000 and buy you know, part of their base income. And then they say, well, that I like the being able to get that paycheck every month. And they put another $500,000. So there is, I think, what is that... They call it a reference point economist, and there's loss aversion that's associated with it. I think mean, part of the problem is that people, so often their identity is wrapped up in that number. And they don't like the concept of need, seeing the number get smaller, which is one of the reasons why the government has now promoted the idea of for workers giving them the translation of the lump sum into an income amount and getting framing them in terms of income instead of framing them in terms of a lump sum. And I think for financial advisors, you can do the exact same thing. You can say, you know, instead of showing them the two million dollars and getting them focused on that reference point, which is harmful for a number of reasons, because if the market goes down by 25 percent and now they have one and a half million dollars, You've got them focused so much on the nest egg value that they're going to you know, get they're going to have an emotional response to that loss and they're going to have an emotional response to you as an advisor. So, um, you know, and there's other things that you can do, I think, to frame the purchase of guaranteed income by using behavioral finance. And one of them is what's known as um, the house money effect. And the house money effect is where. You've had the longest bull run in the history of the United States now over the last 12 years or 11 years. Most clients have more than doubled their stock investments. So what you can do is use the language that, all right, we've taken risk. We've done well in the market. You've gone from $1 to $2 million in this account. Why don't we take some of those gains off the table And then what you're doing is you're creating a different reference point. The million dollars becomes the reference point. The two million dollars, that extra million dollars is house money. It's gains. Take five hundred thousand dollars off of the table and then use that to provide a guaranteed income at retirement. Let's you know, let's let's listen to Kenny Rogers. Let's let's know when to walk away from from that amount of risk in retirement and buy ourselves an income. And I think that there's there's always going to be these psychological barriers to buying guaranteed income because you're buying a promise, but ways
1: to surmount them. Yeah, I definitely like the the analogy to taking money off the table. I mean, everybody has, you know, or many Americans have lost money at be- in Vegas. You know, they can relate to that. They, they know the wisdom of, t- of Kenny Rogers, knowing you know, when to take when to hold them, when to fold them. Uh, you, they don't always practice it. But I think that's a that's a, a good reference. The other thing we see that you know people like you know, utilizing you know other annuity products, you know, with riders rather than the pure income products, you know, where you are annuitizing, you're losing that account balance with the, you know, a variable annuity or a fixed index annuity, you know, for example, you still have the account balance there. So you, you don't see that huge loss and, and that can be helpful, you know, as as well. You you pay a little bit for that, right? I mean, there's you know, there's a rider fee. So you there pay it. for it, you know. But it's another way of of getting over, you know, some of that uh, you know psychological barrier. That's absolutely true, and it's also important to
0: rec- remember
1: that part of that
0: fee, well, a good chunk of that fee is depending on the type of writer. If it's a lifetime income writer, essentially that's going into buying a deferred income annuity. I mean, that you've experience, experience you worked at insurance companies, David, so you know how these things are structured, but you know, part of that money gets taken out, and it goes into a fund. And if you live a long time, then you get that money back. It's not money that disappears. And I think when people point to the fees on some of these products, and say, well, you know, it's so much higher than a non annuitized product. That's not the right way of thinking about it, because part of that is actually going into buying a guarantee. It's going to buy something that has true economic value that you could have gone out on the open market and bought a ladder of deferred income annuities that are essentially providing the
1: exact same pur- purpose. Right, and 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 you're paying for optionality as well. The RIA's we work with, I mean, they understand that concept. You give up something in terms of you know paying for optionality, in other cases. You know, where you have a surrender period. You know, in, in a lot of commission products, you've got surrender periods because right. the carriers got to recoup the commission. In our world, you've got surrender periods or market value adjustments because you're adding duration to the product, you know, which which can be a good thing, right? It's there to deliver better benefit in the product, you know, for the consumer, you know, not to, you know, not to cause uh, you know, not to recoup commissions. So, you know, those are you know, those are some of the you know things we always hear advisors objecting to. I won't do anything with a surrender fee. You do all the time. It's just called something different. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are, you know, of course, there are benefits of illiquidity. And if you're investing in a hedge fund, uh, really, you know, the, the research has shown that a lot of the excess return that you get from investing in hedge funds is the benefits of illiquidity. And so in mutual funds, there are fees that are associated with maintaining the value of illiquidity to long-term investors. They're called redemption fees and mutual funds. And, you know, the most fiduciary-minded mutual funds incorporate some of those fees to maintain the value of that illiquidity. So its it has value to consumers.
1: Yeah, I know we're getting short on time here. One other thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is, you know, what we talk about a lot, sequence of returns risk. You know, sequence of returns risk, you know, a lot of advisors have been Using bucketing strategies. It's one of the more popular strategies, you know, to help address sequence of returns risk, which is, of course, you know, the risk that you, know, you effectively have to sell equities at a low point early in retirements, you know, where you can, where it's really going to impact you down the road because the equity is not going to have time to recover, you know, using bucketing strategies, putting, you know, what we hear, three years of cash, you know, aside, you know, in, you know, into a, bank account, a money market account, something like that, which to me is a really inefficient use of client assets, right? I mean, 50 I've, I've got a poster on my wall from my banking days when I used to you know, be at the first internet bank in the country, where just 15 years ago, we we're paying 6.05% interest on a one-year CD, right? So back then, a cash strategy might make sense because you can actually earn something on cash. You can't today. So it seems like some strategies that were effective in the past, you know, just aren't nearly as effective as we, you know, as we're in today's, you know, in today's reality. We've, We've talked
0: about the bucket approach before. If I was a financial advisor, I would probably use a bucket approach with my client for the behavioral benefit only. I mean, that's your investments don't care how you label each component of the portfolio it is a portfolio and this is a point that michael kitsis has made in the past he's you know been a, been a critic of those who attribute benefits to a bucket strategy that simply don't materialize when you run a monte carlo analysis so you know you you've got these different buckets if you have a big cash bucket it means that you're going to have that that drain, you know, that historically cash has significantly underperformed longer duration bond type assets, you're paying for that liquidity, it's going to cost you if you're paying for that liquidity, it's going to cost you in terms of the longevity of the retirement portfolio. And, you know, if the money goes, if the money in your stocks goes down, and it doesn't matter if you've labeled them as long term spending, this is money I'm only going to spend 10 years in the future, the money's still gone. And if you ran a Monte Carlo with that money gone, your likelihood of success would be significantly lower after the market fell. So the sequence of return risk does not care how you label the assets in your portfolio. It only cares about the expected return and the expected risk. And, you know, something like a March 2020 event over the course of three weeks, if you had followed a 3% rule, you had a 94% chance of success on February 20th. Three weeks later, with a balanced portfolio, your probability of being able to maintain that $30,000 a year plus inflation lifestyle went down to 64% in three weeks. And again, it doesn't matter how you labeled that money. What matters is that you have less of it. So yep. the bucket strategy, I think is great for helping clients manage volatility in the risky portion of their portfolio, but it cannot do something that it
1: cannot do, which is act like something other than a conventional portfolio asset. Right. <laughs> exactly. To wrap it up, just anything else on your mind lately that you've been you know, talking about, writing about that, you, that you know, we haven't covered yet?
0: Well, I think one of the things that we need to consider also is the very common response about generating income from an investment portfolio, for example, through dividends. I get this question a lot when I'm giving presentations about the value for partial annuitization. Why would I partially annuitize when I can get an income from my investment portfolio? Uh, you know, and I, I can get 2% on the SP. I can get higher than that if I invest in, you know, the Vanguard high income stock portfolio. And the answer is because. It's a stock portfolio. And all a dividend is, is a forced sale of a portion of your stock portfolio every once in a while. When the company pays a dividend, the value of that stock goes down exactly by the value of that dividend. So all that's happened is the company has forced you to sell off a certain percentage of your holdings in that investment. That doesn't make it different than a stock investment. And because it is a stock investment, it's risky. And we know with a risky investment, you cannot rely on that to fund your basic expenses in retirement. So again, you know, there's there are these myths about inco- generating income from risky stocks that it is not as risky as it is in reality. It's called the dividend irrelevance theorem in finance. It says, you know, a company can either pay you a dividend or it can repurchase shares. It don't matter. And, you know, the only thing, the only problem with the dividend is that the company determines when you sell your stocks. You don't determine when you sell your stocks. It is not a true income
1: alternative. Well, this has been tremendous, Michael. Really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for having me on. And always great to talk about it. My favorite topic. <laughs> Excellent. Mine too. We actually should talk about cars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. To hear more advisor revelations, go to DPLFP.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming app.